I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode has been sponsored by purpose-led communications agency Higginson Strategy. B-Core certified Higginson Strategy creates campaigns it truly believes in. If you'd like to know more, please visit www.higginsonstrategy.com. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of Media Confidential of 2024. Media Confidential is Prospect Magazine's weekly exploration of the contested world of media. I'm Alan Rusperger. And I'm Lionel Barber. In our last episode, we look back on 2023 and the big stories that hit the headlines. So today, Alan, I thought we should look at our first episode 2024 looking forward to the coming year 2024 of course is shaping up to be a year that will put liberal democracy as we know it to the test the figure i've heard lionel is that something like 80 percent of the world's population is going to be going to the polls this year but certainly the uk the usa and maybe i don't know 40 or 50 other countries uh, holding elections so it's going to be the year of elections, and we'll, we'll be exploring how the media will be covering these votes. If you think about 2016, that was a big one, wasn't it? Brexit, the election of Donald Trump. That proved that democracy is a target for sowing confusion. You obviously have outside agents, Russia, interference, but also the insurgents inside, the, the populists. So I think it's going to be very interesting how social media plays and how prevalent misinformation and fake news will be. And the question is, to my mind, A, whether the regulators, people like the Electoral Commission in this country, are remotely prepared for the way that these elections are going to be fought. Are they going to be fought in traditional style, or are they going to be fought on Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or Instagram? Uh, and where this leaves the, uh, the so-called legacy media? Yeah, I think the editors have also got a big job you can't cover these races just as horse races, who's up, who's down. And the other aspect, I suppose, is artificial intelligence. Uh, it was the story in 2023. AI was the word that entered the mainstream. We'll have to see how AI is used as a tool, a weapon, in these elections. Of course, we've got the ongoing lawsuit between the New York Times which has, uh, at the end of 2023, sued uh, a multi-billion dollar suit against uh, OpenAI and Microsoft. Um, And more mundanely in this country, uh, we've got the rumbling battle over who's going to end up owning the Daily Telegraph and what's at stake there. Uh, The BBC is always in the headlines. It's going to have a new chair at some point this year. And over the water, we've got a couple of British players in Will Lewis and Mark Thompson at the Washington Post and uh, CNN. Lots to discuss, Alan. Uh, Anyway, listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. At Media Confidential is on X slash Twitter. We're at at MediaConf. 
pod. And I should mention that there's a new seasonal subscription offer for Prospect Magazine. We're discounting the price of the annual digital subscription by 50%. Uh, To take advantage of this great deal, please search for Prospect New Year Offer or visit subscribe.prospectmagazine.co.uk slash NY and the offer ends Friday the 19th of January. Now, Alan, you'll be very impressed. Um, I do follow you on Instagram, so I gather you've been doing some uh, building during Christmas. Uh, I was very pleased with my log shed, uh, since you asked. Thank you for mentioning that, Lionel. Uh, It's sort of one step up from Lego, um, i.e. it was sort of a pre-packed. It's like a a sort of outdoor version of IKEA, but I am now the proud possessor of of the log shed. Congratulations. Nothing similar to David Cameron's effort, though. No, I think that was a, a, sh- a shepherd's hut. This is a, a different uh, venture altogether. Um, how was your Christmas and what did you see or watch? Well, we had the children. Um, they're actually in their 30s so uh, and a grandchild over for Christmas in London and then off to Marrakesh for four days where it was warm, it did not rain and I was completing the last pages of my upcoming biography of Masayoshi Son who is the... Uh, founder and CEO, multi-billionaire of SoftBank, the great media investment house based in Japan. Uh, I've had an inkling that you've been working on this for some time. Is this finally going to see the light of day in 2024? I expect to have publication date organised in America, in Britain, either right at the end of 2024 or if things slip, um, January 25. bit like the general election. Well, it is a bit like the election, except um, I hope to be a winner. (laughs) (laughs) We all want to be winners in 2024. So let's get right into this, Alan. Um, I've been doing, by the way, a little bit of uh, research on this subject. Are are you impressed? Uh, Well, Swati Barbo has always been my my secret name for you. Tell me more. Well, I have been looking at my old uh, newspaper, news organisation, the Financial Times, and two interesting articles um, published, one by Alec Russell, the foreign editor, under the long read about can democracy survive in 2024? Uh, interesting, he's grouping these elections, could be more than 50, uh, into groups. So one is the sort of the election in tyrant states. I mean, looking at Russia, Belarus, Venezuela. Then he's looking at a group of elections in countries which are democracies, but where democracy is fraying. You can think about India, most populous country in the world. You look thinking about Mexico. And then you've got elections in established democracies, liberal democracies like UK, USA and EU. Interestingly, Alan, Alec is, is and the Financial Times in general, I think is, is a little bit worried about the state of, of, of where we are and the threat to liberal democracies. But Janan Ganesh, the uh, opinion writer, he's a lot more sanguine. He says, let's not get overexcited. If you think about where we were midpoint last century, two and a half billion people or so, one point eight were in autocracies and so really you've got to measure it in terms of time and you know it was an extraordinary period in 1991 end of cold war when that was liberal democracy at its height and so although there's been a bit of decline it's relative that's a very useful um overview of this year in terms of media let's start with america the the big dilemma last time around and it'd be interesting whether you think 
the the news organizations there uh, have thought this through any more clearly of how you cover Trump. You've got this figure quite unlike any other leader um, America has seen it in modern times, if not ever. And the, the question a lot of American journalists were answering was, do you normalize it by treating it as though this is uh, a routine thing, or, or is this somehow an exceptional figure who can't be accommodated by the normal rules of, you know, as Americans would see it, objective journalism. Yeah, it's a big test. And of course, they somewhat flunked it in 2016. I'm thinking particularly on through the television media, the, the networks, because Trump was such a divisive but charismatic uh, audience drawing figure that they gave him a lot of airtime. And, and he was a master of the medium. There were papers like the New York Times which tried to scrutinise his record, but it's essentially, I think, I think they gave him a something of a of a free pass. Then during his time as president, they saw themselves as the defenders of democracy and almost went too far in the opposite direction. And meantime, didn't do a good job of understanding or reporting on why people were actually voting for Trump. What were the economic circumstances? What were the big social questions, immigration, things like that? I think they're trying to do a better job of that now. It'd be interesting if you try and put yourself in the shoes of the editor of, I don't know, the, the Washington Post, the New York Times. You've got someone who habitually spews out lies. Is your responsibility just to report those? Or how do you flag up to the readers that these things that he says are simply not true at scale? Well, I do think you need a fact check. And the Washington Post actually did do that from 2016. Dan Boltz talks about in his book. And I think that's useful just to state plainly where he's obviously telling blatant lies. But I, I think it's it's also important to write about the state of the Republican Party and to identify, you know, give voice to those people who are coming up with different points of view, challenging Trump. Lynn Cheney, for example, in Wyoming, Dick Cheney's daughter was a very important figure. She needed to be given airtime. So you're not squeezing out people who are moderate voices, reasonable voices. And you're not just giving uh, airtime copy space to, to the noisiest people in the room, like Trump. Traditionally, it's also been a tremendous bonanza financially for the legacy news organizations. I mean, billions go in in advertising or, or have in the past. Do you think that's going to happen this year or do you think that that money is going to go elsewhere? I still think a lot of money is going to go into television. And of course, Les Moonves, then head of CBS, remembered in the famous quote in 2016, Trump may not be good for democracy, but he's sure as hell good for the networks. A low point, I, I would suggest. I, I think other forms of targeting, not just the TV adverts, are going to be very important. I think this is you know, through Facebook, social media, and of course, with the other way is through, through AI. I mean, the, the holy grail of campaigning with, with AI, and I, I'm not sure if we're there quite yet, is the entirely personalised bubble that they, they can come up with, personalised messages for every single voter. Cambridge Analytica were beginning down that road. You can imagine the salivating uh, anticipation of campaign directors at being able to achieve that holy grail. Are we there yet, or is that some time off? No, I think that micro-targeting 
as it's called, has been around for uh, at least 10 years. The, the issue is that it's just become so much more refined. And of course, Trump, with, with his, some of his communications advisors, have been absolutely brilliant at condensing a message. I mean, the, the one in 2016 was make America great again. A lot of people laughed at it, but actually it captured the mood of the moment in the same way that Barack Obama with his slogan, yes, we can. You know, simplicity works. The other criticism, which I'm not sure uh, any any news organization has, has truly got over, and you'll be familiar with it, Jay Rosen at NYU has been raising the theme of how you get beyond the, the horse race. You know, who's up, who's down, who's ahead, who's behind, into the issues themselves. I don't know. I, that, I mean, that, that sounds like an entirely worthy aim. But we all get caught up in it, don't we? We do, but we, sh- we do need to remember that this election is essentially going to be decided by as few as 10 states, mainly in the Midwest, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, these are the battlegrounds, so-called battleground states, so Ohio. So all news organizations really do need to spend time in those states, figuring out what are the issues that are playing. And I remember in 2016, we were late in really getting deep into Ohio. But once we started reporting there, it was clear that Trump was going to be very strong. What about the UK? Um, Because it's likely that we're going to have an election at some point in 2024. Do you think that legacy media is going to have less of an impact? Certainly, voters under the age of 40 are said to be much more swayed now by the stuff they're viewing on social media, on on uh, alternative channels. But I, I guess we would both agree that the, the legacy media still have a pretty important role to play. I think so. And I just want to make one more point about the American election, because we haven't talked about the economy and clearly pocketbook issues, how well people feel off. Are things getting better? That's going to be really the decisive issue. There are these cultural issues as well, wokery, and, but really comes down to how are people doing? And so for news organizations, I think they really need to focus on the, the middle class, people who feel squeezed by inflation, and what are their sentiments? And that obviously plays in the UK, where you know we've had higher inflation than other European countries. We're in a tighter spot, although the economy nominally is, is doing slightly better. So, I mean, obviously, I come from that background, but I think the legacy media should focus on it. How influential will they be? I think newspapers still matter because even the Daily Mail, even in the post-Daker era, it sets the news agenda in the minds of the politicians and also, dare I say it, the BBC. And they will often follow where the tabloids are going, particularly the Mail. I agree with that. I, I, I've never thought the the actual um, pre-election editorials that people spend so much time they might matter at the margins, but it's the, it's the general framing of the election and the issues that, that uh, matter. And, and Legacy media still, uh, for better or worse, do that very well. God, I'm so glad I'm not having to do that. Uh, you know, bring in the College of Cardinals and discuss who we're going to back. Ponderous interventions, mainly by me. Actually, I hardly ever said anything. And then I just talked to a couple of other people and said, you know what, we can't possibly back X. 
you know, you're quite right. The editorial in favour, it was always difficult for the FT as well because we weren't really party political at all. Did you have to consult anybody? Did you have a publisher that you had to talk to about who you were going to endorse? Never talked to the publisher at all. Uh, when we came out for the Conservatives in 2010, I had that in mind. I thought when I took over in 05 that we'd become at the FT a bit too Blairist. And I thought it was sort of time for a change. I remember in 2010, we had a big meeting of must have been about 150 members of staff. Because the Guardian's, you know, paper with, it, I mean, in its history, it's voted, endorsed all three major parties. But it's it's always had a, a, a sort of torn identity between its liberal history and its Labour history. And it's never a foregone conclusion which way it's going to jump. The last election that I did was 2017, and it was just grim. Because post-Brexit, could you really endorse the Conservatives. On the other hand, Jeremy Corbyn was a 1970s Trotskyist. Remind me how the chips fell at the FT on that. I'm afraid they, they fell um, in very scattered fashion in favour in favor of the Conservatives. But boy, did I sweat over that. Well, Alan, what do you think about fake news uh, outbreaks in the UK? Is that really going to be an issue? I think it's it's bound to be. I mean, we're, we're seeing a bit already the, these deep fake videos. I, I, as you know, sit on the um, the oversight board, which was set up by Facebook now Meta, uh, and we've done a number of cases recently. We're doing doing one at the moment about a a, a doctored Joe Biden video. So it's a video of him touching a young girl's chest, and it's doctored in the sense that it it just repeatedly puts us on loop to to suggest he's a pedophile. And the question we're being asked to deliberate on is w- whether that is acceptable or not. Uh, but we're looking at these kind of election trickery and the, the limits of free speech in elections around the world. It's one of the most interesting aspects of our work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Media Confidential's preview of 2024. And coming up. Where do we think AI will end up taking us next? And how can it be ensured that AI is working for us rather than at odds with us? Well, there's lots to unpick here, Lionel. First of all, tell us about this lawsuit, uh, which happened over, over the holiday season with the announcement that the New York Times company was suing OpenAI and Microsoft for staggering sums of money. I mean, billions. Yeah, this is being coming it's in the pipeline there have been talks between the major news organizations in the states um, 
Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch Stable, The New York Times and others with OpenAI and Microsoft, which is the major sponsor. And the issue really comes down to copyright because obviously to generate artificial intelligence at scale, you need to draw on content. And the issue that the New York Times has and others is they feel they should be compensated for, in, in essence, allowing access to their great stores of information. If you think of the what the New York Times archive must look like, I mean, they have 2,000 plus or so journalists producing content every day about every subject under the sun. This is goldmine for, for AI. Now, just one other point here, which is it, it's vital to remember this, and you remember it very well, that back in, say, 99, 2000, the issue was whether news organizations should allow all their content to be freely accessible on the internet. Guardian's a big proponent of this, obviously, and other news organizations charged for content. Now, the hope was the internet would provide the advertising revenue to compensate for that handover of intellectual property to search organizations, etc. But it didn't really materialize. So the key point here is that the New York Times, that's why they've sued for so much money, is not wanting to make the same mistake that happened 20, 25 years ago. Is this a question of, of, of um, slamming the stable door a bit late? I mean, these large language learning models have been, been at work for years now, haven't they, plundering this stuff. Is it late in the day to be suddenly saying, hold on a minute, you should have been paying us? No, I don't think so, Alan, because they don't want to make the same mistake as last time. And they are aware that 2023 was a step jump in the development of these large language models. And everything is beginning to accelerate. So they feel now, now really is the time to take a stand. Because if you wait any longer, then you really have this, the, the horses out of sight. I think OpenAI have already reached a settlement with uh, Axel Springer and with AP. Are these for large sums of money? I mean, what what do you think is going to be the realistic value of these treasure troves of content? Well, I don't know the um, exact number that Axel Springer, which is the German media group headed by Matthias Duffner, who we We interviewed interviewed just a few um, weeks ago, where he failed to mention that he was going to settle for a certain... I've been told that it's not a large, large sum. So it's not 50 million, 100 million or whatever. It's certainly not billions, but it'll be a decent number to help the bottom line. The way I'm reading it, and full disclosure, I've not talked to Joe Kahn, the editor of the New York Times, or indeed the publisher. My sense is that this is a what I think is technically known as the shakedown. I mean, they really want to put the pressure on and get a decent amount of money and then have some rules on future usage. And is this baked into the price of um, uh, OpenAI? I mean, I saw a market valuation of something like $80 billion. I think it's now $90 billion plus. But is this baked into their assumptions that they are going to end up having to pay for this stuff? Oh, I think that that number of $90 billion means that um, anything they get hand over to the New York Times is chicken feed and the settlement I could be wrong here I hate to make market predictions but I don't think it will affect the valuation at all I mean obviously OpenAI Microsoft's um, interest is not publicly quoted so this is a private company in a way Alan I think the 
the the valuation will will be settled and 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 it will be good for the valuation if there is a legal um, some legal certainty. If you were open AI, is there some merit in just saying in playing a long game and saying, well, we'll see you in court? Because I, from what I can see, the American courts are not guaranteed to side with the publishers. It's possible. I mean, I bad publicity. I think legal certainty would be preferable to fighting in the courts. Where, where does the public good lie in all this, Lionel, from your point of view? I mean, we can't uninvent these machines. AI is with us for good, and it's in all our interests that the content that it is processing is good content. Because I mean, you can imagine a world in which all the so-called good content was walled off and there was a standoff between um, legacy producers and these new companies in which they end up training on bad content. That suits no one, does it? That benefits no one. Well, I tend to be a guarded techno-optimist here. I think that AI can be quite useful for dealing with what we in, used to call commodity stories, so stories that don't really have any value added. It's not deep research, the kind of wonderful investigations that The Guardian did over the years. I mean, AI is not just not going to be able to do that. So commodity news, fine. You need to disclose when you're using it. So that's a plus. I think the danger in looking at other media is, say, advertising, where, uh, and I see my son in LA talking about this, where you can put together an, an ad, a video ad, w through AI, and it'll do the direction, it'll do the photographs and everything. So I think that sector is definitely you'd be a bit worried about. And then lastly, I'll just cite um, a very interesting article um, on Bloomberg in the new year by Adrian Wooldridge, formerly of The Economist. He's a great columnist. And he made five predictions, one of them around AI. And he said the big thing to look at in 2024 is AI is the perfect digital assistant. I mean, it really can organize you, organize your meetings, calendars, and that kind of thing. It's the essential assistant that that will be a big thing and he thinks some of the other advances maybe be a bit overbone uh, a bit like y2k in 2000 if you remember what's the obligation of news organizations to tell readers i mean I, I can imagine you're editing a local newspaper times are hard you haven't got the staff that you used to somebody tells you can you can feed in the council minutes and this machine will produce a perfectly serviceable story uh, on the basis of the council minutes, will turn it into copy. That would be very tempting, or, or you could feed in the, the stats from a football match and it'll produce a football report. I mean, this isn't make-or-break stuff. It's, it, it's useful, it's, it's time-saving, it's money-saving. The temp temp temptation is going to be to go for this, isn't it? But, but, but what, what are the rules around transparency and frankness with the reader? Well, if I was sitting in a regional newspaper, I, I, uh, I would definitely use it, but I would disclose it. And, and I would be very clear saying at, at the bottom of the story, this has been AI generated. I'd like to say that there's also proofed, uh, second pair of eyes on the story with an editor, football matches, could be done, I guess. I'm not an expert. You have to make sure that the machine wasn't an Arsenal supporter when covering the Tottenham match, obviously. But seriously, I think I, I think I would use it. And I'd be, you know, what resources you've got, you'd be looking at, okay, this council minutes are there, but what's the story behind the story? That's always what I said at the FT. So what I like about this, 
um, world. Do you, do you remember the Jeff Jarvis saying from years ago, do what you do best and link to the rest? So that was the idea. There's going to be an awful lot of commodity journalism that everyone can do. You can link to that. You, you can now produce that through machines. That should give you the time to do the so-called enterprise journalism, the, 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 the stuff where you really make a difference and, and differentiate your product from what everyone else is doing. I believe that passionately, Alan. And I think that one of the terrible things that happened during the internet age is that people started saying journalism is finished because it's all citizen journalism or it's ju journalism is on in total decline and reporting became de facto downgraded. And this is a complete mistake because actually in an age where facts are challenged, in an age where people are too much in a hurry, actually stopping and thinking, here is the story behind the story, here is something really to be worked on, which requires time and then you produce it, I think that's that could lead to a, yeah, I'm not gonna say golden age of journalism, but certainly a rebirth. That's where I would be putting the emphasis. In this week's Prospect podcast, Prospect's contributing editor Isabel Hilton talks to Elizabeth Green. Elizabeth's a researcher focused on Chinese politics, cross-strait relations and security and defence issues. She's been watching China and wondering if they're gearing up for a war with Taiwan, but also claims that they're currently applying so-called grey zone warfare tactics in the region. Grey zone warfare is a strategy that involves using a range of covert and non-traditional tactics to achieve national objectives without triggering armed conflict. Um, so that typically includes cyber attacks, disinformation, economic pressure, political manipulation, a range of different activities that fall in a spectrum between peace, uh, cooperation on one side, and war, or armed conflict on the other. Um, so the grey zone is everything that falls in between, and these actions are deliberately designed to uh, remain below the threshold of open warfare, and that makes these actions difficult to attribute to particular actors, and it complicates states' ability to respond. So catch that wherever you get your podcasts. So, so much for AI, Lionel. What about social media? 2023 was the year that Twitter was either going to implode or blow up or re be reborn. Um, probably none of those things quite happened in the way that people dramatically predicted. What do you predict for X in this year ahead? And are the so-called rivals, Mastodon, Threads, Blue Sky, uh, and so forth, are they going to, is this year they're going to break through? I'm less optimistic about those rivals. I think they're either less easy to use than than X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, there was a lot of talk about it, of course, um, immediately after the Musk takeover. I mean, for me, it's all about X. It's all about Elon Musk. You were saying, Alan, that in the election campaign, quite rightly, there's going to be a lot of advertising dollars. Well, how much will X get? I mean, if you look at the raw numbers, Alan, since Musk's takeover in October 2022, monthly US ad revenue declined at least 55% year on year each month. Uh, that's according to data 
provided to Reuters. It looks, if not terminal, it, it's it's very serious. Now, Linda Yaccarino, formerly of um, NBC, an ad in- industry veteran, was brought in by Elon Musk as CEO, and she's trying to pick up the pieces. She has very good advertising relationships. But in my view, I think she's really struggling. She's been undermined by uh, Musk with his his big mouth. Um, I think he told advertisers, remember, uh, late last year, to go and F themselves. Not helpful, really, in terms of cultivating relationships. So I I wonder whether Yaccarinos can survive in 2024. We didn't talk about that at the time. What did you make of that? That was such an extraordinary interview, wasn't it, with the the, uh, New York Times? I remember the interview was sort of dumbfounded. He didn't really quite know what to say and then must double down and said, uh, he told them to go and take a running jump, except in more colourful language. I mean, it was like a death wish. It's extraordinary. I mean, he sometimes he's got his EQ is, is so he's not great. But he also has, you know, bears deep grudges. He feels underappreciated as an innovator and entrepreneur. And he doesn't like it when he gets criticism public or private from individuals his rivals and I think he has a particular dislike at the moment to Bob Iger at Disney who's having his own problems with with streaming and streaming revenues there's this whole tipping point question isn't there I mean I'm I'm on threads which I find fine Um, I I hadn't realized until recently that you you couldn't get it in the in Europe because of the various um, GDPR issues privacy issues though I think they're about to solve those Blue Sky I like. It's a much more congenial and benign community than, than X. But I've got something like, you know, 2,000 followers on Blue Sky as opposed to 220,000 on Twitter. So, it, you know, I, I can't make that leap professionally. Yeah, I'm disappointed, frankly, with my X experience. Um, I have around 113 and it's gone steadily down since Musk took over. I have no idea why. I don't use it so much. But, I mean, the serious point is you don't have as many broad sources. It's not as rich a medium as it was uh, pre-Musk. And therefore, I do look at it, um, especially if there's a big news event, and there are some favourite commentators, either witty or insightful. But overall, it's it's a disappointing experience. And if that's me... Is Musk going to do something so repellent and repulsive that people are going to say, actually, I can't bear to be on this platform any longer? You know, Alan, I, I really don't know. I don't use Blue Sky. Maybe I should take a look. But my feeling is that you just have a rather sort of decaying X... And you need something really exciting and different to, to, to take its place. So is X still going to be here this time next year? Definitely. It's just going to be lowercase. There might be some defining event in which, which might be election related, which just makes people just back up and think, actually, I don't want to be here any longer. Alan, you were talking about Mark Thompson, his first year at CNN. I mean, thinking about opportunity this really is the moment, the American election. This is the opportunity for CNN to re-establish itself as an absolutely top news brand. And I'm sure Mark will be thinking really seriously about who he's going to have, who which stars are going to come forward. And if they do really well, they're going to eat some of X's lunch. Well, and I'm really looking forward to England carrying off the uh, trophy in the Euros. 
uh, this year in the soccer. How likely is that? You never quite do it, but it's got to have something of a chance. Um, certainly Gareth Southgate's last moment, I think, to show that he really can take the top prize. What are you looking forward well, to? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the BBC might rediscover its nerve this year. It's had a, a, a rough few years. I, I'm not sure after Samir Shah's subpar um, appearance before the MPs that he's going to be the vitalizing force. But I suppose the best you can hope for the BBC is that it's going to survive this Tory government and that an incoming Labour government will find ways of insulating it. I'm, I'm, you'll be amazed to hear, Lionel, that I'm working on a, a magazine piece which should be out at the, the end of January um, about what I've been discovering about the BBC. And it's in, I think, worse state than I had realised. So my hope for 2024 is that, that Labour come in and love the BBC in ways that I think they should. Seeing as we're in the sports metaphor uh, world, Alan, and I talked about football, my curveball is that Rishi Sunak will lose the election and he will go off to Stanford, California, to for a new life post-politics. Which would suit him, I think, better than his current life. It may be. I've got great hopes of Thangan Debonair. She's the Labour Party uh, shadow spokesman on culture, media, sport. She's actually a, a professional cellist. And I was interviewing the composer George Benjamin, um, and he, he had not clocked who she was. And I said, well, go and listen to her Radio 4 programme on Beethoven. And he texted me about half an hour later and said, my God, we've got a culture secretary who actually knows about Beethoven and culture. Uh, when you think that the Tories have had something like 12 culture secretaries in 12 years, uh, to actually take this field of media and culture uh, and the creative industries in this, in this country and take them seriously and nourish them would be just such a change. If you've got any questions for us about the media, email them to mediaconfidential at prospectmagazine.co.uk and we'll answer a few of them in a future episode. We've got a little bank of them building up. And we're on Twitter slash X2 at MediaConfPod. And remember to listen and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll have brand new episodes every Thursday throughout 2024. So be sure to follow us, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, it's going to be quite a year and we'll be on hand with analysis and interviews all along. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect Magazine and Fresh Air. The producer is Martin Points Roberts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.